0: The Knowledgeable Provider podcast is intended primarily to entertain, also to inform, but it is not a substitute for actual medical training and should not be used by anyone to diagnose or treat any medical condition in themselves or others. If you need medical advice, please make an appointment to see your own knowledgeable medical provider. The opinions expressed by me and anyone else who happens to appear on the podcast are solely those of the people expressing them and are not necessarily representative of any other entities. Other than the lunches at the office, I do not receive any sort of compensation from pharmaceutical or medical device companies, and I have no other relevant financial disclosures. Look, this is all for fun, okay? Don't sue me. All right, on with the show. All right, welcome back to Knowledgeable Provider. I'm your host, Jody Marks. So when I came up with the idea for doing this podcast, my primary goal or my primary vision for what it was going to be was conversations about specific clinical topics. As it turns out, I'm really interested in a lot of non-clinical things about medicine as far as what it's like to work in medicine, the social aspect, the psychological aspect, that sort of thing. I'm interested in people's experiences. Turns out I really enjoy interviewing other people and letting them do the talking. So, this is the first time I'm picking a specific clinical topic to cover and really do a deep dive on. When I can, I like to understand the mechanism behind things that I'm dealing with. I feel like the deeper your understanding of a topic is, the easier it is to make decisions about treatment, the easier it is to pick up on things and diagnose them and work through what you ought to do to treat the problem. I find it a lot easier to answer patients' questions or explain things to patients if I really have a deep understanding of what I'm talking about. And it's a lot easier to teach things to students that I really deeply understand. Of course, I can't say this is true for every single problem that I deal with, right? I mean, just to choose an example, something like antibiotic treatment, I pretty much just memorize which antibiotics to use for which parts of the body or which problems. If I tried to have some kind of discussion about the actual mechanisms of the antibiotics and gram-negative, gram-positive cell walls and why which types of bacteria respond to which types of antibiotics and glycoproteins and membranes and blah, 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 blah. I would just have to look all that up. I dumped every bit of that out of my brain as soon as I didn't have to know it anymore. And of course, in primary care, at least in my experience, you deal with so much, you're liable to have to have a conversation about literally anything. And there's just no way that I can have an in-depth knowledge of every single topic that I'm called upon to discuss on a daily basis. But when possible, I really like understanding something and being thoroughly familiar with it as opposed to just memorizing an algorithm or a protocol or having a very superficial knowledge. So that's what I'm doing today. And this came about because I saw a patient the other day who has secondary hyperparathyroidism on her problem list, and that's something you don't really see every day. So I wanted to look it up and learn more about it and I thought I would just cover the whole topic of hyperparathyroidism. It's a fairly common situation, so it's good to know about it and good to be able to recognize it and know what to do about it. So in general, of course, hyperparathyroidism is caused by overproduction of parathyroid hormone. And in some places, you might see that referred to as parathormone or parathyrin, all the same thing, the hormone that comes from the parathyroid gland. Those glands, of course, are the four little dots that are located within the thyroid gland. And they really don't have anything to do with thyroid. They just happen to be located there. So I believe that's why they're called parathyroid. But there's really no relationship between the parathyroid glands and thyroid hormone. Really, their primary job in life is to control calcium. So more parathyroid hormone, higher level of parathyroid hormone causes the GI tract to absorb more calcium. It causes the bones to release more calcium into the blood. And it also causes the kidney to reabsorb more calcium from the urine. So the goal of parathyroid hormone is to increase the serum calcium. And like so many other things, it should be a negative feedback loop. So the body senses the calcium gets low, the parathyroid hormone goes up. This causes the serum calcium level to go up. And then the parathyroid hormone goes back down. And this is a really tightly regulated system. You know, the normal range of serum calcium is not super wide. So the body keeps a pretty close eye on this. The parathyroid hormone also affects phosphate. So in the same kind of way, it determines how much phosphate the kidneys are going to reabsorb from the urine and how much phosphate the gut is going to absorb. The relationship between phosphate and calcium is pretty interesting. A teacher told me one time something to the effect that calcium and phosphate are like secret lovers. Behind closed doors, they're together, but out in the open, they're separate. They're apart. So what he meant by that is usually... When the calcium's doing one thing, the phosphate's doing the opposite. So the way parathyroid hormone affects the kidneys, for instance, regarding calcium and phosphate, reabsorption is opposite, or it's inverse. So if the parathyroid hormone is causing the kidneys to reabsorb more calcium, that means they are getting rid of more phosphate, and then vice versa. If the kidneys are reabsorbing phosphate, they're getting rid of calcium. And then the behind-closed-doors bit is that calcium and phosphate come together in the bones to actually help form the structural elements of the skeleton. But almost anywhere else you see calcium and phosphate out in the blood, in the body, it's going to be doing the opposite thing. The other exception to that is in the gut. Parathyroid hormone has the same effect on the gut, whether you're talking about calcium or phosphate. So it's going to cause the gut to absorb more phosphate and to absorb more calcium. And then the other thing that parathyroid hormone does is it stimulates vitamin D production in the kidney. So with vitamin D, we get some from our diet. And it's also synthesized in the skin. But in order to be turned into its active form where it's doing something for us in the body, it has to be hydroxylated. And that happens in the liver and in the kidney. In the liver, that hydroxylation process just depends on the serum concentration of the precursors. So if there's a bunch of inactive vitamin D floating around, the liver kicks in, hydroxylates it, turns it into the active form of vitamin D. And if there's not a bunch of precursors floating around, then it stops doing that. In the kidney, it's a little bit more complicated. The whole process has to be regulated by the parathyroid hormone, as well as the phosphate and calcium levels. So when we have too much parathyroid hormone floating around for whatever reason, that means that we're going to have too much calcium in the blood in general. And that's pretty much how we're going to pick up on this, of course. Because the parathyroid hormone is stimulating the bones to give up calcification, you're going to get weak bones. The cells that build bone are going to try to compensate for that as best they can, right? The osteoclasts, So you can actually see an overgrowth of the osteoclasts as they try to compensate for the decreasing bone density due to loss of calcium. So you can actually get tumors formed that are made just of overgrowths of osteoclasts in the kidneys because the excretion of calcium and phosphate or phosphorus is, is abnormal. And by the way, I'm certainly not a chemist. Sometimes I say phosphorus or phosphate and use them interchangeably. Phosphorus is the mineral that's contained in the phosphate molecule, which I believe is phosphorus and oxygen together. So the phosphate is the electrically charged particle that is active in the body. So I believe the correct term is phosphate when we're talking about how it operates within the body. But if I say phosphorus, I'm sorry, just know I'm talking about the same thing. You can get stone formation, and of course that can lead to obstruction, kidney injury, pyelonephritis. And then in the gut, you see more susceptibility to peptic ulcers and pancreatitis. So, a lot of people who have hyperparathyroidism will be in more of an asymptomatic or subclinical kind of state. When you do start seeing symptoms, all of those symptoms are due to the high level of calcium, so hypercalcemia. So, we're talking about fatigue or apathy, weakness, GI symptoms like nausea, vomiting, constipation, high blood pressure, cardiac dysrhythmias. Because calcium acts directly on the brain, you can start to have some psychological symptoms. If you remember back to AMP, calcium is important for transmission of electrical signals within the muscle and nerves. So if you have too much calcium floating around, you actually have decreased excitation potential of the nerves and the muscle cells. So things aren't working as well. If there's too much calcium floating around as all the calcium is being stripped out of the bone, you can start to get some bone pain. You start to have pathological fractures because the bones of course are weaker or you can start to get some deformity, some skeletal deformity in different areas so the extreme form of this is called a hypercalcemic crisis, right? So this is a serum calcium level above 13 milligrams per deciliter. And that can be like a life-threatening situation. So if you're seeing somebody in that kind of situation, we got to do something quickly to get that calcium down. So those folks are going to be treated with a lot of isotonic saline, IV fluid, and calcitonin, which is sort of the opposite of parathyroid hormone, right? It causes the kidneys to get rid of calcium and reduces the bone resorption. So it stops the breakdown of the bones, and helps get more calcium out of the serum. I think it's cool that you can use bisphosphonates to treat hypercalcemia. You know, we think of bisphosphonates as being used for osteoporosis treatment. And so if you think about the issue that's happening with hyperparathyroidism, well, how do we stop the calcium from coming out of the bones? Same way we do if we're just worried about the bones, right? We put them on a bisphosphonate. And if it really comes down to it, we can use dialysis to quickly get calcium out of the system in one of these life-threatening kind of situations. You can give people steroids. Man, don't steroids just work for everything? The way they help with hypercalcemia is they stop the conversion of vitamin D from the inactive to the active form. So that actually slows down the GI absorption of calcium. And that would be the reason why long-term steroid use leads to osteoporosis, right? In the past, they've used loop diuretics to help lower the calcium because they do cause increased renal excretion of calcium, but there are so many other complications of using those because they screw with so many other electrolytes that those are not really used anymore except if you actually have fluid overload from heart failure or kidney failure and you just need to get the fluid off as well as the calcium. A couple of the classic signs of hypercalcemia, remember the old Chavastek and Trousseau signs, Chavastec is where you can tap on the facial nerve and it causes the muscles on that side of the face to spasm. And then Trousseau is the one where you inflate the blood pressure cuff on the upper arm, technically to 20 millimeters of mercury above the systolic pressure and hold it for three minutes. And then you start to see this spasm of the arm and hand. I saw this one time on a patient who came in the ER when I was there as a practitioner student. And it's interesting because it was an older lady And some of her primary symptoms were like psychological kind of symptoms. So she was kind of she was acting crazy. And, you know, in the ER, sometimes you fall into that pattern of just thinking everybody's crazy and you're just tired of dealing with it. And she wasn't really being treated super nicely by everybody. But her I guess it was her daughter. There was a family member was there with her and she kept telling people, no, this is not this is not right. She doesn't act like this. Something's off. And so the family member was already being pretty defensive by the time I was talking to her and interviewing her. And at some point, I said something to the effect of, well, you can see some of these symptoms with electrolyte imbalances or other metabolic disturbances. So we're going to check all that and make sure there's not some underlying medical reason for what's going on here. And I just remember she appreciated that so much. She said, oh, you're the first person that's not suggested this is just a psychological problem. And it turned out she did have hypercalcemia. I don't remember why. I mean, I assume it was hyperparathyroidism, but I I don't know what the ultimate outcome was. But we tried these things, the Chavostic and the Trousseau. And I don't think we were able to see the Chivastec sign, but we did definitely see the Trousseau. And it didn't take three minutes. Pretty quickly after inflating the blood pressure cuff, you could see her hand and her forearm kind of start to draw. So that was neat to get to see to actually see that. So as far as the diagnosis of hyperparathyroidism, usually this is something that is discovered incidentally. Again, most of these people are asymptomatic. So pretty much what happens is you check somebody's routine labs or you, you check labs or something else and you realize their calcium's too high. And so when I see that If I don't have an immediate explanation for that, the first thing I do is just check the parathyroid hormone, PTH. And really, technically, to make the diagnosis, you're supposed to check the intact PTH and the calcium at the same time. And to confirm the diagnosis, you're supposed to do it twice, at least two weeks apart. Usually in practice, what happens is I see the calcium's too high, I go back and add the PTH. If that's high, I send them to the surgeon. And that's pretty much where my role ends until they come back. Some other things that you might see elevated include the outfoss, collagen crosslinks, and osteocalcin. These are things that are not actually helpful in the diagnosis or the management of hyperparathyroidism. These are not things that you would go out of your way to check. But of course you see the outfoss on every CMP. I don't know why you'd be checking collagen crosslinks or osteocalcin, but it's one of those things where if you do see those elevation, you might think about hyperparathyroidism, but it's not really super relevant to management or diagnosis of that. Remember the whole calcium and phosphate thing, right? They're only together behind closed doors. So if the serum calcium is high, that means the serum phosphate is going to be low. And keep in mind with the whole feedback loop thing, if the serum calcium is high, that means the PTH should be low if things are actually working correctly. So if you find a normal PTH, but a high calcium, we would also think of that as being an abnormal finding. If you have that kind of situation, the thing that you want to check next is a 24-hour urine calcium excretion. And that can help you distinguish primary hyperparathyroidism from familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia, meaning the calcium's too high because the kidneys are not getting rid of it, enough of it like they're supposed to. You don't always have to do that 24-hour urine calcium excretion test, but that's one way with asymptomatic primary hyperparathyroidism to help figure out how much of a risk of long-term kidney damage there is. So if the kidney's cranking out a bunch of calcium, that means they're more at risk for stones, they're more at risk for kidney injury, kidney disease over time, and that may help guide your management strategies, which we'll talk about in a minute. So if you see high calcium and low PTH, of course, then we have to look for other causes of hypercalcemia. So if we see the calcium's high, we check the parathyroid hormone, it's low, which it should be if the calcium's high. Well, now we're not talking about hyperparathyroidism anymore, right? We're looking for other causes of hypercalcemia. And most commonly, those are either going to be some kind of cancer or that familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia. So hyperparathyroidism breaks down into primary, secondary, tertiary. With primary hyperparathyroidism, we just see that one or more of the parathyroid glands is enlarged. Most of the time, that's due to adenoma. About 85% of the time, and the gland or glands that are affected just simply make too much PTH. They inappropriately crank out too much parathyroid hormone. There are several other things besides adenoma that can cause this. You can get what's called multi-gland hyperplasia, meaning that three or four of the glands are all hypertrophied and cranking out too much hormone. Carcinoma can cause this. If there's some reason that you have decreased intestinal absorption of calcium and vitamin D, which makes sense, right? If you're not absorbing enough calcium, that means the calcium level is chronically low. And so the parathyroid hormone level should be high because we need more calcium. You can have a genetic disorder that causes this. It can be caused by multiple endocrine neoplasia, osteomalacia or radiation to the head and neck that directly damages the parathyroid glands. There are a couple medications that we need to think about that can affect the situation, make it worse. The biggest one is the thiazide diuretics. Of course, like everybody's on thiazide, those actually decrease renal excretion of calcium. So they can cause higher serum calcium. So that's not going to cause primary hyperparathyroidism per se, but it can unmask it. So if somebody's taking a thiazide, you check their calcium is part of their routine labs. You find it's high. Maybe it's because of the thiazide. Maybe it's be- maybe they have hyperparathyroidism. You really don't know until you stop the medicine. So you find hypercalcemia. You want to know whether or not it's the thiazide causing it. You stop it, and then you recheck that calcium and the PTH three months after they've stopped the medication. And that'll tell you, was it the medicine or do they have primary hyperparathyroidism? And if that first calcium level is really high, like if it's above 12 It's probably not just the thiazide doing that. They probably really do have primary hyperparathyroidism. And the other medicine to consider when we're talking about calcium is lithium. It actually makes the parathyroid glands less sensitive to calcium. So they're not able to detect the serum calcium as well. So they're going to crank out more PTH because they think the serum calcium level is lower than it actually is. And lithium might also reduce the amount of calcium that the kidneys excrete. So if you see hypercalcemia in somebody who's on lithium, of course, the question is, can they stop the lithium or can they not? So if you're on lithium in the first place, you probably have some pretty significant psychiatric issues going on. So it may be that you don't have a choice but to continue the lithium and just deal with the hypercalcemia. But in an ideal world, maybe you would be able to stop the lithium and correct that hypercalcemia without having to do anything else. So that's primary hyperparathyroidism. Now to secondary hyperparathyroidism, which is what got me interested in talking about all this in the first place. Like any other condition, secondary means that the hyperparathyroidism is caused by something else. So it's a result of something that's not the parathyroid glands. And in this case, with secondary hyperparathyroidism, that other cause is kidney failure, chronic kidney disease. In fact, this condition, secondary hyperparathyroidism, has actually been called renal rickets. There are several things that happen with chronic kidney disease that cause the serum calcium level to be low. And I'll go through those in a second. When the serum calcium level is low, of course, the parathyroid hormone level should go up to try to compensate for that. So secondary hyperparathyroidism is actually an appropriate reaction of the parathyroid glands to a decreased extracellular calcium level that's caused by chronic kidney disease. And over time, you can actually see that the parathyroid glands actually do become hyperplastic. They get larger because of that long-term stimulation to make more and more and more parathyroid hormone. So the specific things that happen because of chronic kidney disease that affect serum calcium. First, you have a decreased level of vitamin D. Remember, the kidneys play a big role in turning the inactive form of vitamin D into the active form. So if you're not getting that vitamin D, then you're not able to absorb as much calcium. Second thing is phosphorus retention. One of the big things you see nephrology following with chronic kidney disease patients is their phosphorus level. And of course, I mean phosphate. Kidneys don't get rid of that phosphate very well when they're damaged. And remember, unless they're behind closed doors, phosphate and calcium do the opposite. So when the phosphate is too high, the calcium is too low. That can also directly lower the vitamin D level. And in addition to lowering the calcium, having too much phosphate actually increases the parathyroid hormone gene expression. So there are several different ways that too much phosphate can affect the calcium level and the parathyroid hormone level, both directly and indirectly. Third thing, you have an increased concentration of fibroblast growth factor 23, FGF-23. This was really a more recent discovery by Yamashita et al. back in 2000, as in 23 years ago. It turns out this fibroblast growth factor, having trouble saying that, it turns out this FGF-23 concentration actually goes up before both the phosphate and the parathyroid hormone level in chronic kidney disease patients. So this has actually changed the thinking a little bit about how phosphorus contributes to the hyperparathyroidism. Fourth thing is called Clotho. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. K-L-O-T-H-O. This is a little transmembrane protein that's actually required to activate that FGF23. So those two things are related. Fifth way chronic kidney disease causes hypocalcemia is actually reduced expression of receptors for vitamin D and calcium and these fibroblast growth factors. Sixth way is decreased activity of calcitriol, and seventh way is that the bones are actually more resistant to the parathyroid hormone that you do have. So sort of like how in type 2 diabetes, the cells become more resistant to insulin and don't respond to it as well, the bones are not responding like they should to the parathyroid hormone that you have. So for all those reasons, chronic kidney disease people have low calcium, which means they have high parathyroid hormone level. And then we have tertiary hyperparathyroidism. This is a consequence of having secondary hyperparathyroidism for a long time. So pretty much you just get this severe hyperplasia of the parathyroid glands. They've been stimulated by low calcium chronically for however many years, however long. And so they get huge. They're cranking out all this parathyroid hormone. And a lot of times with these patients, you'll see like really, really high levels of PTH, despite the calcium level being low or even in the normal range. And this is not a problem that would be corrected even if the underlying kidney problem is fixed. Right. So even after somebody with chronic kidney disease gets a kidney transplant, that parathyroid gland hyperplasia does not correct itself. It doesn't go away. And if you allow that to continue after a transplant, so if somebody has ongoing hyperparathyroidism after they get their kidney transplant, that's no good. You see worse mortality, see higher risk of loss of the graft, and then, of course, all the other usual issues that you see because of hyperparathyroidism. And these can turn into neoplasm, right? These can actually turn into the adenomas that we see typically with primary hyperparathyroidism. So these are big, giant parathyroid hormone glands that really are not paying any attention to the serum calcium concentration at at all at this point. They're just big old muscled up glands that are sitting there cranking out parathyroid hormone, regardless of what they should be doing based on the calcium level. So what do we do about all this? What's the treatment for hyperparathyroidism? The answer to that would be parathyroidectomy. You got parathyroid glands cranking out too much hormone. So you go in, you take those out, fixes the problem. And they may not necessarily take out all of the glands. It depends on how many are hyperplastic and how many are overactive and how high the parathyroid hormone level is. Traditionally, the way this has been done is with bilateral neck exploration. So just big open surgery of the neck, digging around to try to find the parathyroid glands within the thyroid. Now with better imaging techniques before surgery, it's easier to locate those parathyroid glands without having to cut the patient open and dig around. So This is something now that's more frequently being done as a minimally invasive kind of situation. Smaller incisions, more precise surgical techniques. One source I read said that this can actually be done in the office sometimes, like under local anesthesia. When I worked in recovery, they did these parathyroidectomies at my hospital, and it was a big surgery. The patients came out big incisions, and it was always a big deal to monitor them after surgery for postoperative hypocalcemia. Because, of course, if they have a bunch of parathyroid hormone that's been cranked out by these parathyroid glands and then suddenly take that away, all of a sudden they're prone to having hypocalcemia. So one of the things you'll see done after a parathyroidectomy is that they'll give them a dose of calcium by mouth, both as a safeguard against hypocalcemia, but also sort of as a test to see what the body's going to do with that. And, of course, after the parathyroidectomy, you have to check the serum calcium level to make sure it's okay at some point before the patient goes home. And really, if you're taking care of one of these patients after surgery, you need to have IV calcium around in case they really become very hypocalcemic and start having issues with tetany. Another complication of that procedure is damage to the recurrent laryngeal nerve, which is right there in that neighborhood, and that affects the vocal cord. So you can get vocal cord paralysis, which obviously would affect somebody's voice permanently. If you have somebody that is asymptomatic, their calcium's only a little bit elevated. So maybe you saw their calcium was just a bit elevated. You check the PTH. It's a little bit elevated, but, but they're fine. They're asymptomatic. You may choose to just watch that patient and not do anything. That's where that 24-hour urine calcium excretion comes in because you can get an idea about their risk of developing kidney injury from this. Of course, their kidney function, how well the kidneys are working at baseline. Have they had kidney stones? Are they forming stones because of this already? What does their bone mineral density look like? what's their vitamin D level, all those things are taken into account when you're thinking about whether or not to send the patient for surgery. If you have a postmenopausal woman with mild hypercalcemia, you might just consider treating with estrogen therapy. That doesn't do anything to help the hyperparathyroidism directly, but it does help protect from bone loss. And then of course you can still use the other medicines that you would use to treat osteoporosis to help protect their bones. Uh, If we're not going to do anything to treat this, if we're just going to monitor. Those patients should be encouraged to increase their fluid intake in general to help decrease their risk of kidney stones. You might consider telling someone to try to reduce their calcium intake, but that's, but that's really only reserved for situations where the calcium is really high. And I would think in those situations that would just be done until they could get to surgery. So we're not generally going to be telling people that they can't eat a normal amount of calcium or that they have to watch their calcium intake. Obviously, if they're vitamin D deficient, they're going to need a vitamin D supplement. If we're talking about secondary hyperparathyroidism, there are a couple medications you can use to treat that. You can actually suppress the release of parathyroid hormone with vitamin D analogs or these medicines called calcimimetics, and those work to make the parathyroid glands more sensitive to the extracellular calcium level. And so if they're better able to sense what the calcium level is, then that should decrease the secretion of parathyroid hormone. Those two calcimimetic medications are called cinacalcet and etylcalcitide. The senacalcide is a daily medication that's given orally, and etelcalcide is an IV medicine that's given to people on dialysis after each dialysis treatment. And of course, if the hyperparathyroidism is refractory, whether it's secondary or tertiary, they certainly might consider a parathyroidectomy to treat that as well. The whole approach of knowing the underlying mechanism behind a particular thing doesn't seem to fly with everybody. This is kind of the approach I take when I put together the lectures that I give to the nursing students. And I guess maybe some of them get it. Sometimes it clicks with them, but a lot of times I feel like it does not. I'm actually really struggling with that right now, trying to figure out how to get enough information across to the students that it's useful, but not so much that their eyes just glaze over. And really, I understand too that You would think when we're in school and in training, that would be the time that we were super interested in learning and gaining more understanding and being curious and taking the time to seek a bunch of knowledge. But I don't think that's the case with a lot of students. I think a lot of students are just trying to get through the day. And I'm pretty sure that's how I was as a student as well. Like, what do I have to do today? What do I need to know for this test? I'm just trying to get through this. And I understand that. I mean, it sucks being a student. They're all busy. They're all stressed. Students that I work with are all, I guess would be called, quote unquote, non-traditional students. They're all already working LPNs and paramedics who are bridging to RN. And it's a pretty hectic program. It requires a lot of time between the classwork and the clinical hours and all the different things that they're required to attend and do in addition to whatever time they spend studying and working on their own. And they all are also working. They have jobs, they have families, they have other obligations, of course. So mostly the vibe I get from them is they want to know what's going to be on the next test and they want me to shut up and let them go home. So I don't know if this approach is really useful to a lot of people. I can say that for myself, any passion that I have for learning or curiosity about things has mostly only come out when I've not been in school, when I actually have the time to focus on what I want to focus on and not just what we're studying right now. And I wish maybe I had taken more advantage of the time that I had while I was a student Okay, so that's my little deep dive on hyperparathyroidism. Hopefully you'll find some of that helpful as far as understanding what's going on with the situation and treating these patients. If you have any questions that I can answer, if you heard anything I said that was wrong, or if you want to talk about anything we cover on Knowledgeable Provider, you're welcome to send me an email. It's thekpod at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-K-P-P-O-D at gmail.com. All right, that does it for this episode of Knowledgeable Provider. I'm your host, Jody Marks. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to like or subscribe or follow and leave a nice five-star review. And as always, stay safe, take care of yourself, and take care of your patients in that order.